We are calling this series Kingless Kingdom. And Judges is a book that, you know, I never really thought I would teach, at least at this point in the ministry. Um, I'm a New Testament guy. I love stories about Jesus. I love uh, hearing about his love and forgiveness. I, I love learning about how to follow the king. Um, so flashing back to a time period in Israel's history where they're a kingless kingdom, it's pretty dark. It's pretty depressing. This book, Judges, is one of uh, the most disturbing stories in scripture. It records some of the most disturbing people who ever lived who do some of the most disturbing things imaginable. And it's why a lot of churches actually avoid teaching the book of Judges. They do one of either two things. They completely ignore it or they kind of glorify it and they focus on all the wrong reasons. But this book gets very crazy. There's a part in here towards the end where there's a story where a prostitute gets cut up into pieces, and then the guy who cuts her up mails her body parts to different people in the city to, like, freak them out. Like, it's, there's, it's like the whole book is just filled with crazy stuff like that. So why, why are we teaching it? Well, I believe, guys, that there's different ways you can read the Bible. You can read it like a devotional where it's just every day, like, you know, what fluffy little thing does God want to say to me? Um, You can read it as a rule book, but I think it's a living word. I honestly think that God is here with us, and his presence is with us, and he has something he wants to say to us. And I think he's put judges on our radar for a reason, because there's a message in the book. Even though these are people who lived long ago, and even though this is before Jesus, I believe that for our youth group, God has specific words he wants to give us, and specific people in this group, things he wants to show us about his character, about ways where we're failing, and we need to shape up and follow Jesus, and also to give us hope and to look at the king. See, here's the thing. The idea is a kingless kingdom, but the way I want to look at this book is I do not want to look at it by itself. I believe as a Christian, whenever we look at the Old Testament, we need to look at it in light of the cross. And so we're going to look at this kingless kingdom as something that foreshadows for us the need for a king. We're going to be looking for Jesus in every paragraph. We want to look at this as an in-depth study at what happens when we humans forsake covenant faithfulness and try to become our own kings and queens. We'll examine the need for Christ to be king of our hearts and the tragedy that happens when he is not. That's the idea behind this series. And it's found in this phrase, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a time period where everyone is just doing whatever they want. Imagine, picture a crown with no one wearing it. Picture an empty throne. That's the scene that we're getting in this book. And we spent the last year looking at John, and that's all about how God became king, how Jesus became not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the world and the king of our hearts. But now we're going to see a time period where Yahweh has been dethroned, where our God has been booted off his throne. And it's not that people came to him and fought him and won. The reality is a kingless kingdom only gets that way because God won't force himself on us. And so he gives us a choice. He says, you have to follow me or you don't. And so you end up with a kingless kingdom when you choose to not allow him to sit on the throne of your heart. He won't make himself the king of your heart unless you willingly open it to him. But when we fail to choose him, we're faced with the horrible results, our own personal hell on earth. We create for ourselves with the sin around us. When we don't allow Jesus to rule, we create a hell on earth for ourselves. This is the dark picture Judges paints. 
It's mankind left to his own devices. So before we even start the book today, I want to set the stage for you to understand the three dangers of a kingless kingdom. The whole point of the message today is as your youth pastor, I want to prepare your hearts for this series that we're going through. I want you to be able to look back on this message and think, what is this book about and what are some of the main things God is trying to teach us? So the first danger of a kingless kingdom is a kingless kingdom leads to a lost purpose. When I was a kid, I used to play with action figures, and I loved them, and I used to play games like Final Fantasy, and it was the same with my sisters. You know, they would play Barbies, and they'd watch shows about, I think, unicorns or My Little Ponies, or I don't know. They, they watched stuff like that, and they loved it, and, and I loved things where it was this fantasy world where it seemed like I had a purpose. Like, I loved Lord of the Rings. Frodo, what's his purpose? Destroy the ring in the fires of Mordor, and then I love Star Wars and Luke Skywalker, and, and, and I know nowadays I still love these type of movies. I just watched watched uh, Star Wars Rogue One. It was amazing. And if you haven't seen it, you're in sin. So go watch it. Um, But I I love Hunger Games and just this idea of, you know, the one person who's called to save the entire universe. I I love that. And that's, that's why fantasy is so attractive. But a lot of times reality is not so great. Like in junior high, I always wondered, what's my purpose? Like, who am I? And when I got to high school, it didn't get much worse. I literally felt aimless all the time. It's like, what am I even there for? And the way my week looked, you know, and maybe this is how your week feels, but, you know, you're wondering, what is my purpose? And a lot of times that you think of future and college and and jobs, but right now, it kind of feels like you don't have a purpose. For me, it was always, you know, get up. Wake up, get dressed, go to school. I would have to carpool with Emma Hill's uh, brothers, Austin and Ethan. They were little kids at this point, and they were always smacking one another and fighting with one another and pulling each other's hair. So started off my day great every time. I'd go to school, and I'd see my friends, and I'd see Standy's bald head. We had this bald teacher named Standy with a goatee, and he would always yell at us, and it was awesome. Um, some of you guys know him. Uh, Fred Boshaw, I'd go, and he'd you know yell at me for not knowing math and throw pencils at me, and it was a good time. Then I'd go home and I'd do hours of homework and then I'd get ready for bed and I'd get up and that's just the cycle. And so I started to think, you know, maybe my purpose is Saturday, you know, Saturday morning. I'd get up, and I'd be like, oh, cartoons. Like, I don't know if you guys watch Saturday morning cartoons, but, like, I was in high school, and I was still watching Saturday morning cartoons. I'd turn on the WB, and they'd have all of my favorite shows, and I'd watch them and eat a bowl of cereal. It was so good, and then I'd play video games for hours, and that just, you know, for a while, I thought Saturday cartoons and video games was my purpose, but after a while, even that got old. I was like, this kind of feels empty. I can only jump on Bowser's head so many times before I realized that there's nothing substantial here. So then I started to think, oh, I know, my purpose is Sundays, it's church. So I'd get up in the morning, and I'd be so stinking sleepy for Sunday morning, and I'd get dressed, I'd get in fights with my sisters on the way to church, and I'd drag myself to the junior high room as a junior high kid, and I'd be so sleepy, and the worship would be going, and I'd just be mumbling through the songs, and then I'd be like, oh, Bible study time, awesome, I like the Bible, gosh, I hope my pastor is funny today, and so I'd be listening and listening, and I'd be getting distracted by all the math charts on the walls. If you guys don't remember in 303, there used to be math charts all over the walls because we used to to share that space with the school. So I'd be listening to study, and then I'd be like, oh, math, I hate math, but I can't look away. Like, that's, that's where I was. And, and, and I forgot sometimes to bring something to take notes with, so I'd be trying to listen, and I'd be like, oh, is he done yet? And I'd be looking at the clock, and I'd be like, okay, now he's done. What was he talking about? And then I'd get in the car, and my mom would ask, what did you learn today? And I'd be like, uh, Jesus, and obviously that wasn't my purpose. 
So compared to Mario or Frodo or Luke Skywalker, I didn't really have a purpose. And maybe you feel this way. Maybe you feel like I have no purpose. I want you guys to know today that you do have a purpose, but if you live without Jesus on the king of your heart, you'll be separated from that purpose. In the story, Israel has lost their purpose. What's the story of Israel? I mean, it starts with Adam. It starts with a man created to be in relationship with God. Then he's torn apart, and the world gets dark because of sin. So God sends a flood, and he saves Noah, and the world begins again. And then we come to a guy named Abraham. And God says, Abraham, I've got a plan for you. You're going to go to this land, and I'm going to make your family into a great nation. I'm going to do something very special with your family. We here in the future know the plan was Jesus. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, what happens? They end up in Egypt, and then their family gets put into slavery, and so many children are born, and the Israelites are slaves. The children of Abraham are slaves, so it looks like God's plan to save the world through a future Messiah, Jesus, can't happen, and so what happens? God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses delivers the people out of the land of Egypt, and then Moses dies, and then Joshua, his apprentice, rises up and leads the people, and then he gets really old, and then he dies, And what we're left with is these people who started the family of Abraham now in Egypt and now they're in the wilderness wandering looking for this promised land, looking for this place where they're going to set up shop. That's where they're at. But a lot of years passed in between that. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time remembering what I came into a room for. Are you ever that way? Like you, you go through a door and you're like, wait, wait, what was I doing? These people have had hundreds of years between the time of Abraham till now, and God is trying to use them for this purpose, but because they're not looking to God, because they're not listening to him, they are losing their purpose. And in the book of Judges, they talk a lot about covenant unfaithfulness. What's a covenant? You guys know. We've talked about it before. It's an agreement between God and man. It's a partnership. We're going to partner together to do something. What was the partnership for? God says, Israel, you're going to be my people. You're going to partner with me to be a special people. And when people look at you, they're going to say, that's what God is like. God is just. He's loving. He's amazing. But they forgot. They fail constantly. They had this holy mission. God called them to go into this land and take it, which is something that God doesn't call us Christians to do. Have you ever noticed that? God's never said, all right, Christians, go to France and take it over for Jesus. It's a different time period. God is setting up something. He's going into this land where there's all these wicked people, Canaanites, who who had moral corruption. They were constantly sinning and doing evil things. They would sacrifice their children. God says, clean them out of this land. You take it because you're going to set up your shop here. Israel is going to be here, and Jesus is going to come from here. So the reason God is driving the sinful people out of this land is actually because God wants to plant a Messiah in the land to actually save all sinful people in the world. But they don't listen. They don't drive the people out. They lost sight of their purpose. You know, I think a great example in the book of Judges that we'll come to is Samson. Totally lost his purpose. This dude was just a guy who God said, Samson, you are special. You're a special guy. When he was born, his parents made him take this Nazarite vow, which meant basically he was going to be set apart for God. He was going to be a pure guy. He would look to God. He had all these outward things that he did to show people, like he grew his hair out really long and his beard out really long, and and he would never touch a dead body, which I don't know why you'd want to, but he wouldn't even drink wine, like any of this stuff. It was all these things that it was a special guy where God said, you're going to be set apart, and what he ended up doing was he broke all of those vows he made to God, 
and he lost his strength. He ends up selling out to this prostitute named Delilah just because she's hot, and he ends up trading in his people. And in the end, he, he ends up saving himself. One last act of strength, he destroys this pagan temple and takes out the Philistines with him. But what a sad place. That wasn't how he was meant to die. They plucked out his eyes. They blinded him. It's just, it's, it's a horrible place Samson ends up in. We see this all the time. People losing their purpose. It's a king that gives us purpose. And that's why we need the king in our life. Uh, Alongadudu, which I realize is a ridiculous name, but that's his name, so... Let's just laugh at it and move past it. Alongadudu Abraham says this, knowing who you are in Christ is the first step in fulfilling purpose. It's so true. Knowing who we are in Christ is the first step to fulfilling our purpose. What is our purpose? For you guys today, not Israel, not Old Testament Israel, for you guys here today, what's your purpose? It's to be a follower of Jesus. It's to live for him. It's his mission. This story we're looking at, it's on the left side of the cross. We're now on the right side of the cross. And so our purpose is to live for Jesus. All of these violent, horrible, gnarly wars that happened in the Old Testament, these people fought and died so that we could have a Messiah. And so now that the Messiah has come, now that you have Jesus in your life, listen, you are called to live your life for him, to be on mission for him, to be the best follower of Jesus you can in all the roles that you have. As a child of your parent, you're called to be the best follower of Jesus you can. As a student in your school, you're called to be the best follower of Jesus you can. As a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're called to be the best boyfriend and girlfriend you can in the name of Jesus. You're called to be a great husband and wife one day, a great mom, a good dad, a great employee. All of these things honor God. And most of all, we're called to be disciples, which means Our purpose is to follow Jesus and help others know him. And I've heard, and I know you've heard me say this a million times, but it really is our purpose to live for Christ. And I've seen my life change with me fully knowing that purpose. Listen, what I do as a youth pastor, and I I don't know if you guys ever think about this, but maybe some of you guys here, maybe you think of me as like, that's just his job. He gets up every week and teaches us the Bible because it's his job. I'm telling you, I am so passionate about you knowing Jesus that if the church closed down and if they couldn't pay me, I would continue to volunteer as the youth pastor and I'd go work at Starbucks or something because I didn't go to college, so I don't know where else I'd work. It's not just a job to me. I know my purpose. God has called me to be somebody who shows other people who he is. And that's not just a pastor thing. That's a Christian thing. He's calling all of you to be like that to show others who he is, to reveal him to others. Are you doing that in your life? I can't imagine the pain of feeling purposeless. Thomas Carlyle says this, a man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder, a waif, a nothing, a no man. Have a purpose in life and having it throw such strength of mind and muscle into your work as God has given you. I love that. Guys, without a purpose, we're like a bird without wings. We're we're like, imagine this. Imagine a football player who's called to be a football player. Like he knows it's his purpose. But every time he runs onto the field, every time he steps foot, his legs break. Just every time. And then he's like in the hospital for like weeks and weeks. And then, oh, I'm back on the field. And like, you know what I mean? That's what we do as Christians when we live in sin. Every time God puts us on the field, we're breaking our own legs 
and causing ourselves to be unable to walk with him. When we live in sin like the people and judges did, we're crippling what God is trying to do in our lives. I think one of the biggest ways we can fight the sin cycle is just by merely acknowledging that it exists. And that's why I want to talk about this crazy paradox of the kingless kingdom being a place where we call wrong right. Do you do that in your life? Do you call wrong right? That was the lifestyle of Israel. They basically got into this crazy sin cycle. They would sin. They would worship false gods, whether that meant bowing down to cow statues or, which sounds ridiculous in our age, uh, but what are our idols? We worship celebrities. We worship people we follow on Instagram. We worship people in our life. We idolize musicians and bands and movie stars. We idolize sex. We idolize pleasure. We bow down. It may seem stupid to bow down to a cow, but for us, we bow down often to what's on our iPhone screens. And so, They sin. They forget God. They do what's wrong. And so what happens? God allows another nation to come in and kick their butt, basically, to come in and say, we're taking you down. And so they're oppressed, and they they realize in those moments what it feels like to be under the boot of sin. That's why God allows that, to show them what sin actually does. Yeah, it seems great for a time, but in the end, sin enslaves you and oppresses you. So then what happens? They repent. They cry out to God. They say, God, forgive us, forgive us. And then what happens? God raises up a deliverer, one of the judges, one of these men, not a king, but a warrior to come in and deliver the people. So then they have peace. But as they're sitting there in peace, they look over and they spy out something sinful and they go, oh, I want that. And the cycle repeats itself. Now, have you ever been in this cycle? Because I know I have. Being in a time of sin, and then sin wrecks my life, and I realize, man, sin is getting me in so much trouble, and it's breaking my heart, and so I repent, and I cry out to God, and God delivers me through Jesus, and then I have peace, but then I look over, and I see something that I want, and I go for it, and it's the cycle. You're going to see this all throughout the book. Don't just look at this as something they're going through and go, oh, those jokers. This is us. See this in yourself. We all do this. We all call things right in our own eyes. Calling right wrong is, I mean, it's, it's the girl who says, I can't handle people gossiping about me, so I'm going to gossip back. It's the guy who says, I just can't wait until marriage to have sex, so I'm going to go for it now. Not only am I going to look at pornography, but I am going to convince my girlfriend to go after this as well. It's the student who says, yes, I, I, it's so hard for me to pass this class, so I've got to cheat. I mean, everyone does it. It's the student who says, yeah, drugs and alcohol are illegal for me right now, and at any time, really, they're destructive for me to abuse them, but I'm just going to do them anyway because I need them in my life right now. When we say, I can't live without these sins, we choose to live without a king in our heart. Why this quest for freedom from God? It's been going on since the beginning of time. Think about it. I mean, do you really want to live in a world without rules? Think about it. A world without rules. Some of you guys just are like, that sounds amazing. A world without rules. Okay, do you want to live in a world without gravity? Like, what would happen? Like, you hit your head on the ceiling. Or if you're outside, you're in space and you're suffocating. Gravity is a rule. We need rules. I mean, fire is a fun thing. Fire is a good thing, but it's also a good rule that you shouldn't run into fire. Like, nod your head if you agree with that. 
Like, shouldn't run into fire, right? Yeah, you guys are not nodding hard. Give me some solid nods. Yes, don't run into fire. You would never do that. Now, here's the thing. How many of you guys have little uh, brothers and sisters? Anybody? How many of you guys have any toddlers in your life? Anybody have toddlers? Okay, so let's just get it out. Toddlers are dumb, right? They're so dumb, so dumb. Okay, so a toddler does what is right in his own eyes. And we know that's wrong. Have you ever seen that video of that kid who's like, he's talking to his mom and he's like, Linda, Linda, honey, honey, listen, Linda, let me tell you something. It's like, dude, you're like not even one. Like, you're, you're, come on, man, what are you talking about? Listen, to a toddler, it sounds awesome to run into fire. It's like, oh, that sounds so cool, running into fire. We're like, no, you're a toddler. You're so dumb. We know better. And parting of trusting God is realizing our position as being so much lower than him. We lack so much knowledge compared to him. It's like the difference between our knowledge is like a full glass of water. His knowledge is like the ocean. It's so much more limited, but we don't get that because we just want to do what we want to do. We don't want him to be the king of our heart. We want rules, but only when they don't apply to us. We want fairness, but only when we get fairness. We want rules that benefit us. We don't want to follow rules that take away our ability to do whatever we want. I sent out a message to um, um, some of my friends, and I asked them, what are some dumb things that your kids have done? So here's some things they said. Put their finger in sockets, cross the street without looking, eat bugs. Daniel's mom said, bean in the nose. So I don't know when that happened. I'm guessing it wasn't recently, because that'd be weird. Uh, But bean in the nose. I'm glad you got it out. One lady said that her daughter was playing with a KFC packet as a toy, and they're like, please don't play with that KFC packet. She's like, no, I want to. And she squirted hot sauce in her eye. Really bad. Um, My friend Dave said his son Corbin fed an entire stick of butter to their dog, and the dog threw up all over the living room carpet, and it smelled like movie theater popcorn forever. Um, I'm going to read direct quote from Evan Wickham because I think it's just epic. He says, uh, this is Evan Wickham talking about his kids, um, sucking thumb after pooping, sharing toothbrushes, stirring poop in the toilet with said toothbrushes, depositing poop under various furniture, hiding in the corner to poop in their pants, completely unrolling toilet paper onto the floor, flushing all everything in the world down the toilet and pooping while eating. And then I responded on Facebook, so basically parenthood is just 24-7 dealing with poop. And he said, yep. I was like, great, sounds awesome. Um, Brant's mom said, eating vitamins like candy, uh, hiding cookies in their underwear. This isn't Brant's. He has a ton of younger siblings. Um, but So just don't, yeah. But may, maybe you did this when you were young, Brant's. I don't know. But uh, hiding cookies in their underwear to run by you and then pulling them out to eat them, cutting their own hair, biting, using others' toothbrushes, running in the street, and going to pet random dogs. My friend Jonathan said eating out of the trash can, and uh, Jill Granquist, uh, Ryan Granquist's mom, said, Ryan used to sit in the toilet like it was a jacuzzi. (laughs) So we would never look at these toddlers and be like, you know what? You're just being you. You just do you. (laughs) That stuff is awesome. Yeah, just (laughs) that's all great. No, they're toddlers. So we're like, what are you doing? Stop that. We need to realize that no matter how smart you think you are, God is the eternal parent and we are the eternal toddlers. Can we just agree that he knows best? He died not so he could rule over us, but so he could have this loving relationship with us and we constantly reject him. Now, um, I want to talk to you guys about just this this idea of post-truth. Have you guys heard at all about the idea of post-truth? 
So each year, Oxford Dictionary will pick a word to describe the trend or sentiments of that year. So uh, last year, 2015, or two, two years ago, 2015, the word that defined 2015 was this emoji, which it's the emoji where it's like you're laughing so hard you're crying. Up this close, it's terrifying. Like, if I saw that in a dark alleyway, I would think it was about to murder me. Um, so that was 2015's word of the year. 2016's word of the year was post-truth. Here's what it means. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Here's what it means. In our culture right now, we live in a culture where facts don't matter. What matters is how you feel. It doesn't matter what does God say, what does truth say, what is truth. It's just, no, this is how I feel about it. The way that I feel emotionally dictates what is. But is that ever really true? I want to show you guys a video that I think just nails it about where we're at in society right now, living, doing what's right in our own eyes. So here is a video that I think will really help you see what's going on right now. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 605. 
if you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. You're like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? So I thought that was really good and really well handled, and it shows where we're at in society right now. We're in a place where feelings trump facts, and where the way that we feel is the highest virtue and value, and so truth goes out the window. And I think we need to be a place that speaks truth. Uh, David Borlas says this, the church, that's you guys. You're the next generation of the church. The church must seek again to be a voice of the truth to a generation that has been brought up devoid of absolutes. That's what's been going on on colleges' campuses, or college campuses, for the last you know, 30 years, we've been seeing this idea of there's no absolute truth. Now, I've shown you something that's honestly more on the liberal side of things, but I want to talk to you guys also about something that hits a little bit more close to home for those of you guys who'd call yourself conservatives. Um, this also happens where truth is denied. I saw during the last presidential election uh, on Facebook, which none of you guys are really on anymore because you realize Facebook is the place where old people go to argue about politics and die. So you were like, we're going to go on Instagram and Snapchat and chat instead. So I'm on Facebook and I see what the adults are saying. Um, and here's the reality. Fake news, so stories that were false, were being spread like wildfire during the election. Things against Hillary and things against Trump all over the place, many of it not true. Things that if you spent five minutes fact-checking them, you'd realize this is not a true story. So I ended up confronting some Christians in our church about it, and I was like, hey guys, like, I know you want you know, this guy to win, but at least find some stories that are true. Why are you spreading these false things? We're Christians. We're supposed to stand for the truth. And this is the response I heard. I don't care if it's a fake story. All I care about is winning. I will spread a fake story as long as my side wins in the end. And so for those of us as Christians who call ourselves Christians, we cannot have a double standard. We have to be committed to the truth. I, I see this all over the place, and I'm telling you guys this because I care. It's our lack of truly knowing God that makes us call wrong right. I want to consider really quick a guy named Jephthah. So in Jephthah, or in the story of Jephthah, we'll, we'll read about him in chapters 10 through 12. We've got this guy who's a warrior, and he seems to follow God. He seems to love God, but he doesn't truly know God. He doesn't understand who God is. Here's what happens. Jephthah goes to war, and he, he goes to God, and he tries to make a deal with him. He's like, God, let's make a deal. I will 
do something for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So we'll go to war, and if we win, when I get home, the first thing that walks through my door, whether it's a chicken or my dog or my horse, I don't know why a horse would walk through his door, but you know, the first thing that comes to the door, I will sacrifice it to you on an altar. So sounds great. I mean, yeah, people used to do it all the time. They would sacrifice animals to God. So he goes to war, comes home. He's victorious. He won the battle. Guess who comes to the front door? It's his daughter. Dad, you won. And he's like, oh, shoot. And he believes that he is now required by God to sacrifice his daughter. Now, if you know God, you know he would never require that. In the Old Testament, we have the god Molech. Molech was a Canaanite god. He required people to sacrifice their babies. They would bring their children onto this fiery altar and put it down, and the fire would consume the infants, and they believed that the god Molech would bless their land. It was totally this pagan practice. Jephthah doesn't know Yahweh good enough. He actually relates Yahweh to Molech, the Canaanite god. He thinks that's what Yahweh is like, and so he ends up sacrificing his daughter. Why do you think... I'm so passionate about wanting you guys to know and understand who God is. It's because when you don't truly know God, you live in a way where you call wrong right. And Christians can even do this. That's why we need to study the scriptures and see Jesus. One of the things I've always told you guys is if you're ever wondering what is God like, what is, what is Yahweh like, look at Jesus. What does God have to say? He already said it. It was Jesus. When we don't truly know God, we live in a way where we call wrong right. The next thing I want to talk about is just this idea that a kingless kingdom ruins good leaders. Ruins good leaders. We see this all over the book of Judges. We see it with Samson, a guy God raised up. He was so strong. Samson once killed like a bajillion guys with a jawbone of a donkey, which I would have loved to see that. Like, just imagine the donkey from Shrek, and Samson walks up, and he's like, hey, Samson, what you doing? And he just, like, rips his jaw off and starts beating people to death with it. Pretty intense, and, you know, I honestly would have loved to see it. Um, but... Samson got wrecked. He got wrecked because he didn't make Yahweh the king of his heart. He made sex the king of his heart. He wanted this woman named Delilah, and he said, I will do anything for you, when God said, no, you're called to do anything for me. And Samson sold himself out. Same thing with Jephthah. This guy who was a great warrior, but because he didn't truly learn who Yahweh was, because he didn't truly seek Yahweh, he kills his daughter. And we see it also in the story of Gideon. Gideon was a guy, we'll read about him in chapters 6 through 9. Gideon was a guy, like we learned in the video, he's this coward. When God comes to him, he's hiding from the enemy. And he's like, no one could ever use me. I'm the weakest guy in my family. And God says, no, Gideon, you're a mighty man and I'll use you. And he, God's like, I'm going to raise up this army. And Gideon's like, sweet, where's my army? And he looks and it's 300 men against thousands. And Gideon's like, God, your plans are terrible. And God's like, no, trust me, I've got a great idea. So when you go to war, and Gideon's like, what do I do? Spears, swords, arrows. God's like, no, clay pots and torches. <laughs> so like, do I try to burn them? And do I try to like 
throw the pots at the guys. I kind of see how that could work. And God's like, no, actually, you're going to walk up to the enemies. You're going to throw the pots on the ground. And then you're just going to stand there shouting at them. That's all you do. And what happens? They actually defeat the enemy that way. It's insane in the story. So Gideon's this leader. He's a great leader because he listens to God. But then what happens in his life? He forgets God. And he turns to idols and starts worshiping them. And it's so crazy. I was just reading this the other day um, when I was studying Judges and just looking through the book. So Gideon, the way he was remembered after he died, he got a nickname, and it basically meant Gideon, worshiper of idols. That's how people remembered him. Not Gideon, the guy who lived for the Lord. It was Gideon, worshiper of idols. And the tragic thing, guys, is that all of these people had the Holy Spirit, and you're thinking maybe, you know, if you're really deep into Bible stuff, you're thinking, I thought the Holy Spirit only came after Jesus. No, the Spirit of God has been at work all throughout the scriptures. So God's Spirit falls on these people and empowers them to do great things. But because they never truly turned to God, even though they had his Spirit, they still sinned and made mistakes. And the reality is, guys, this is kind of scary, but God's Spirit can be on you, but it doesn't always mean that God approves of what you're doing. You can have God's spirit in your life and still make a wreck of your life. It's not enough to only have the spirit. We have to submit to the spirit. Does that make sense? It's not only enough to have God's spirit. You have to say, I surrender to the spirit. Like, Lord, make me like a leaf and you're the wind and just blow me around wherever you want me to go. Because otherwise we're just dragging him along for the ride with whatever we're doing. Rick Warren says this. He says, if God only used perfect people, nothing would get done. God will use anybody if you're available. This is true. However, yes, God uses sinners. But guys, in light of the cross, I'm saying to you, the modern church, the young followers of Jesus, we have to be more. We have to be more than these guys in the book of Judges. They had the spirit, but they were never truly submitted for many of them. The only really the first judge that we read about, Othniel, is like the first guy who just does good and nothing bad happens with him. All the other guys who come after them have terrible mistakes that they make. I'm not saying that you won't sin. That's not what I'm saying. But as a follower of Jesus, you have to be submitted to him. You have to say, Lord, I want you to be king of my heart. I want you to lead me. We need leaders in our lives who will stand for God, who will commit themselves to holiness, Not perfect, but set apart, dedicating yourself not to be perfect, but to follow the perfect one. John Corson, Ben Corson's dad, writes this. He says, wake up. Look what's happening in your lives. I know of young men who could have turned this world upside down for the Lord. I know of young guys who could have really made a mark for the kingdom, but because they weren't awake to what the word of God says concerning filthiness, coarse jesting, that's dirty jokes, uncleanliness, fornication, and pornography, they're ineffective to this day. And replace that with any list of sin that you can think of. When we commit ourselves to the sin in our lives, we can never truly be committed to God. And Judges teaches us that bad leaders plus moral corruption equals the sad, tragic truth that they became just like their enemies. That's really one of the saddest things about the story of Judges. They're in this land, and they're called to fight against the Canaanites. And God says, look at these Canaanites. They're wicked, and they don't follow me, and they're sinful, and they commit child sacrifices. This land needs to be made wholly set apart, so get these guys out of here. What ends up happening? They don't drive them out, and in the end, the Israelites become just like the Canaanites. 
That's what will happen to you if you don't ever surrender to God. Maybe you're here today and maybe you are starting to dabble in sin or maybe you're living a good double life where you've got your church life and the way that you look at church and the way that you act at church and then you go home or you have other friends that you hang out with and you're different around them and you follow the ways of the world around them and maybe you're thinking, I can do this. I can do this balancing act because I need this to survive high school. I can't follow God in high school. It's too hard. When I graduate and go to college, when I get married and find a godly husband or a godly wife and I start to settle down, then I will follow God, but I can't right now. Listen, you're kidding yourself. If you don't follow him now, what's to guarantee you'll follow him later? You might end up 20 years from now being the kind of person who shows up to church once every six months to repent for like a day and then go back to your old sins and living a life where it's just been wasted, a life where God had so much potential for you to do great things for him and yet you sold it out. But don't become like the judges. Don't become what you're fighting against. Look inside your own heart and see the enemy. Seriously, look it square in the eyes Do you ever do that? Do you ever think about your sin? We don't like to face our own darkness. We don't like to think about our sin. We like to sit around and think about the good things about us. We like to sit around and say, what compliments do people give me? What do people like about me? What do people say about me? I want to look at my comments on Instagram. I want to look at my likes. I want to see how people approve of me. Do we ever really take time to stare into the depths of the blackness of our own hearts? Do we ever take time to sit down and say, God, I need to get my sin out in front of you. I need to get out and tell you, this is what I've done this week and last week and this month. This this is my trash. Do we take time to bring that before Jesus, admit that we're wrong, confess it, and say, God, I need you to clean me up? That's what God's looking for. Humble hearts, not prideful hearts who are so full of themselves, who just want people to see the, the perceived filtered hashtag good in them and not the true darkness reality. If you don't have anyone in your life that you can get encouragement from and say, hey, I need to talk with you about my sin. If you don't have friends in this group where you don't ever say, hey, I messed up this week. Can you pray for me? You're in a hard place, a hard place where you're going it alone and Jesus didn't call you to go it alone. What are you known for, your sin or your savior? Think of that. The people outside of this group who aren't Christians, when they think of you, what do they know you for? Your sin, the things that you do to fit in with them, or your Savior? And so just to end today, I want to ask the question, is your heart a kingless kingdom? As we start this series, is your heart a kingless kingdom? And I know, I've known you guys for years, I know how hard it is to follow Jesus as a young person. I get that. When I was in Oklahoma, I went on this walk, and I remember I was trying to be in shape, and I was trying to lose some weight, and so I walked for about an hour, and it felt amazing, and it was so cool, downtown Oklahoma City, looking at this big old water tower and this old flower factory and all this cool stuff, and I'm walking around and tripping out on it, and then I decide I need something to drink, and so I step into 7-Eleven, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get like a healthy snack, and I'm going to get something good to drink. And I'm looking around, and literally every item on the shelf was junk food. Like, everything. And you know what it's like in 7-Eleven. Like, is there health food there? No. Everything. It was Slurpees and cookies and chips and crackers everywhere. And, like, the only thing that was really redeemable was a bottle of water. And I was just looking through it, and the Lord struck me, and he was like, this is what it's like for a high school kid to live as a Christian. 
Everywhere that they look, it's just trash and junk and things that feel good now but lead to just death later. That's what it's like. And so I look at you guys, and I'm not like, you stinking high school kids, get it together. No, I get it. It's rough to follow Jesus as a high school kid. It's hard to follow Jesus as a high school kid. But it would be wrong of me not to challenge you. I remember... Uh, talking to Trevor O'Keefe, one of my good friends, he used to run this group when I was a counselor. And Trevor O'Keefe told me this story of how there was this pastor getting up to preach one day, and it was this small town church. And he was getting ready, and he was looking at his message, and he was wondering, like, am I being too soft? Am I not being hard enough? Like, this message is really light and fluffy, and it's kind of just like, yeah, God loves you, and everything's going to be okay, and just come to church, and it's all great. And there was a drunk guy in the crowd And the drunk guy looks up the pastor and he says, hey, preacher, preach it good because, you know, we're all counting on you to tell us we're okay. And it just struck him and it struck me hearing that story that that's what we want. We want people to tell us we're okay, but we're not. And that's what the book of Judges is here to tell you. And that's what I'm here to tell you. We're not okay. We've got sin in our heart. And the only person who can deliver us from that cycle of sin and oppression and repentance and deliverance and peace, but then sin all over again, that cycle, the only person who can truly deliver us from that lifestyle of sin, and maybe that's you today, you're stuck in the sin cycle just every week in the same mistakes, the same sins, the same temptations, giving in and giving in and cycling and cycling. The only person who can deliver you from that is Jesus. And we have to face that. No more excuses. There was once a magazine that interviewed theologian G.K. Chesterton. And they asked him, Chesterton, this is a guy who follows Jesus. They asked him, what is wrong with the world today? And he's this great theologian, and they think he's going to have some amazing statement about the politics of the world or the moral degradation of society. So they said, Chesterton, what is wrong with the world today? And he replied, dear sir, I am. Because he realized it was the sin in his heart that caused pain and suffering in his world. We are the problem, but he is the solution. And I said it last Sunday, and I'll say it again. Like A.W. Tozer says, in every heart, there is a cross and there is a throne. And Jesus can never be on that throne until you get yourself off that throne and you put your flesh on the cross where it belongs. So as we study the book of Judges, keep this in mind. He loves you, but he doesn't want you to live in a kingless kingdom. Let's pray.